everybody, I'm Mark Thompson. And as you know, I have the rare privilege of being able to circumnavigate the planet, both virtually and in person, with some of the most epic leaders of organizations in the world today, from chief executives to CPOs, CHROs. We're talking about the people who run people in organizations, and there's nobody who does it better than Caritha Rushing. She's spent her career at Pepsi and at Coke and at companies that have had a global influence on large populations of workforces, and she's been leading those organizations through transformation. So today I had the privilege of talking with her about what it really means to come out of the pandemic, what it really means to start to take a workforce into the next steps of the hybrid work environment, and you'll get a special treat because she'll talk about what it means to be a coach. Each and every one of us is an executive coach. We can help others find the best versions of themselves. Listen to this conversation with Karitha. I wanna welcome everyone to a very exciting conversation with a person who's influenced the way we think and present and deal with our conversations around human resources. She's been at the forefront of really helping develop and design new ways of transforming workforces. She sits on private and public company boards and Karitha, I really wanted to talk to you today about how you think about the process of selecting the chief people officer or what might be the, the leader of talent management or the CHRO. When you think about what the CEO needs to be thinking about today, and you are now also <laughs> sitting on so many boards, when, you, when you're sitting on so many boards, you're often in that front row seat of choosing or selecting or vetting that individual, what would you say are some of the characteristics that make it different perhaps than maybe even a decade ago? Well, I think there, you know, there's an obvious assumption that the technical capability has to be present. And usually when people are engaged in a search, uh, they're often using the benefit of a search firm uh, or others uh, who are in that space. And so let's just assume that when we're talking about when you're making the selection, the technical capabilities are there. Um, uh, then I think there needs to be some understanding of what the leader's strengths are and what his or her gaps are and looking for someone that be, can be complementary to those, right? I think that many CEOs are actually introverted and not extroverted as we might believe. And I think that there's an opportunity for them to get in front of their workforce and espouse and explain the vision, but then completely be exhausted by those exchanges. And then when they get off the stage or they finish their presentation, often they get bombarded with tons of employees who wanna have these one-on-ones and this is their opportunity to meet with the CEO. Knowing that you're naturally introverted might make you select someone who brings the technical capability and might be more extroverted. So you can have that yin and yang, right? Also someone who has different experiences than you, but complementary experiences. Because I think the reality is, I mean, when we talk about having a diverse workforce uh, and diverse leadership team, I think that's what we're talking about, not having people that are similar in their thinking, similar in their backgrounds and experiences, because your workforce isn't. Like it or not, you know, your workforce is a very diverse uh, group of people, whether it's intentional or not. You may have a workforce that uh, doesn't have women and people of color, but then you have different thinking and different experiences and different regions of the world and countries that they come from. So I think part of it is trying to figure out what would complement me and then also understanding where is your business in this in the 
transition? Are you in transformation? Are you in, I don't think anybody unfortunately can say that they're in a maintenance mode today, but it's, it's the degree of change that you're experiencing and that person's experience in driving and living through change, their tolerance for change. Uh, at the Sherm conference recently, I talked about the fact that the assumption is that HR professionals understand change and have a high tolerance for change. And in my um, experience uh, as a, an executive coach this last year, I often find the biggest deterrence to help an executive deal with the change is the HR people he's working, he or she is working with. They want everything to stay the same when there's so many other things that are changing, right? And often your people processes, the approach that you use, the culture that you have embedded in your organization require some change. And so I think also understanding your tolerance for change and trying to bring someone in who, again, if you are, if you are a change junkie, you love change, you know, it would be nice to have someone who's kind of like, whoa, 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 not all change is good. Yeah. And if you're a person where you hate change and you're tolerating change to have someone who's willing to push the envelope and lean into the change. So I think it's really important once you get the technical expertise to find a person who's complementary to your strengths and gaps. Um, and sometimes I think what you find is the industry experience may or may not be that relevant, which opens up the people that you can look at. You know, that is such a brilliant way of thinking about having that coaching relationship in the relationship with the CEO and the person who's running people and the HR function, that yin and yin, being yeah. able to provide that context and that push and pull and, and help really bring that leader along in the conversation and really harvest the diversity in the many different voices Absolutely. of the organization. And I think about also your comment around change. It's so true. We don't just have the one change. So no. it's not a matter of whether we like it or not. It's more a matter of if we can like all of them, all of those different changes that have to happen. Absolutely. And and it's a matter of being able to balance those. In, in your role as an HR leader, how did you think about that? Because there are battles to pick and those that are needing to be pulled together. How do you think about all the different changes at the same time? I mean, it's hard. I mean, I would say I have a high tolerance for change. Um, and um, it's hard because I think the other thing you have to be mindful of is you have to know where you are on the change continuum and how much tolerance for change you have. As a leader, you want to bring people along, not drag people along. Um, and the same thing is true of the leadership team that you support. On any executive team, you're going to have different people's responses to change, even though every person sitting around the table in the C-suite is responsible for leading change in his or her organization. And you want the organization to move forward. And the assumption is, you know, it's an army and we're all stepping forward at the same time. And as we know, as I say to people, any great change in the world usually happens with a small group of people and then the rest come. Right, that's kind of how it works. And I think we get really frustrated all the time when we wanna we want to move something forward and we look around and not everybody is on board. That actually is the norm. You know, that is actually when you look about great changes that have occurred both socially, politically, uh, culturally, 
it's not the masses. It would be easy if it was the masses. It's never the masses. It's the early adapters and the people that, despite the risk, are willing to move forward. So I think it's important to understand where are you with change? What is your tolerance? So if you know, I'm really smart, I understand this business, I want to help us move forward, but I just get this agile. We start talking about breaking stuff apart and rebuilding it to align yourself with other leaders on your team who seem to be more comfortable with that change. Because I think like anything else, if we get with people who feel differently about something, you know, it helps us because we're all, we all have to be operating in this continual learning kind of mode. And one way to learn from some people is you're just beside them and you just watch them and you listen to them, right? And you don't realize you're taking it in, but you really are taking it in. And then sometimes you're like, how do you do that? Aren't you freaked out? And they may say, well, yeah, but. So I think it's just trying to figure out on the change continuum where you sit. Um, and then trying to find a way to kind of sit with all those different people, the people who are rigid and don't want to change, and the people who, quite honestly, change for change's sake. You know, it doesn't make sense all the time to change, but it's helpful to understand the continuum so you can see how you can add value. I'm thinking about your description of casting, in a sense, that team, so that you have all those different parts we can play and contribute to that, that change agency that you're talking Absolutely. about. Absolutely. That really leads to a, at least a short conversation around succession planning, because if you're casting that team and you're often the partner with the chief executive in choosing that new candidate, sometimes there's a search that often goes even simultaneously outside. And then there's a short list of those candidates on the inside. But what would you say are some of the practices we should be thinking about in this environment, especially when it's in many respects, kind of an employee driven market, a seller's market of, of those. Absolutely. I, I was look, listening to an, uh, um, a presentation on NPR and they were calling this period the great resignation. Uh, yeah. And they made the point that you have people who are literally opting to leave, but you have people who are still, particularly because there are still many working remote, they have disengaged from the workplace, but they're kind of showing up, you know, the body is here, but the mind and the spirit has left. Um, and so I think it really is making companies uh, I know at the board levels, the boards that I'm sitting on is becoming like an everyday conversation when we get together. You know, more board, I mean, boards are getting together more often because every day something's happening. I'm here in Atlanta, and today Delta announced that they're going to increase their healthcare costs by $200 per month for any employee who does not have a vaccine. And this isn't the first time I heard it. I've heard it on the other end. I've heard a couple of CHROs that I've been talking to where they're saying their benefits providers, their insurance providers have basically said your premium will go up because we have enough data at this point. We have a year's worth of data uh, that says if an employee is ill uh, and they, um, uh, they contract COVID, the bill is going to be X. So I think in Delta's announcement, they talked about the average employee who's been who's contracted COVID. The average bill is forty thousand, right? Now that's probably that's the average, and we know what we know what the average looks like. We know there's some high ends, and it doesn't account for the normal kind of unplanned healthcare crisis that people have, like cancers and you know heart conditions. Um, and so it's it's you know, it's caused a lot of noise, you know, people are talking about it today. But the reality is, you know, I saw one person comment, you know, it's a, it's a tax that they're applying, to, they're leveling this tax on their employee. But then I heard someone else say, but we tax employees who choose to smoke. You know, we don't tell you not to smoke, we give you every option to stop smoking. But at the end of the day, it's your choice as an adult, but we're not going to disperse that cost 
or the potential of that cost for you having lung cancer or other diseases across our workforce. So, you know, we're in a very challenging time. And I think because of that, there are a lot of discussions about not only just succession planning, but building a bench of possible candidates, because the day of saying, you know, it's going to be Mark, you know, Kreetha's going to leave and Mark's going to be her backfill. One, by the time I'm ready to leave, you may be gone, right? Uh, or you may have decided, you know, I'm happy where I am. I actually don't want to do that job. Uh, and I think a lot of people are really re re reassessing, you know, do I want to do what I'm doing? Uh, and I think about, you know, people who have said to me, I, I, what I do is okay, but really what got me going was the people that I worked with, the company that I was affiliated with, and all the perks, right? I've only worked at global companies, and, you know, I'm you know, happy to say that one of the perks at all those global companies was the opportunity to travel the world right? To travel the world, to meet interesting people, to travel on somebody else's dime. And often if the meeting was over and you wanted to stay, you could take a vacation day and extend your stay. And so for a lot of people, it's like, you know, I don't like sitting in this room and crunching these numbers, but then I get to do X and I get to hang out with Mark in, in Dublin, or I get to hang out with this person in London. And suddenly what's happened is companies have contracted the amount of travel. I keep reading that literally you know, anywhere from a third to half of the business travel will never return. Uh, you know, the Sherm example, the Sherm conference was a perfect example. I am sure there were a number of people who went to their managers and said, hey, I'd like to go to the regional conference in Nashville. And their first question was probably, well, is it virtual? Right. Uh, and then for those people who said, yes, it is. And your boss said, well, I don't know that I want to fund it. And then you said, well, I'll fund it myself. There were many people who were not allowed to come because their companies were saying we're not endorsing any traveling at this time. We don't want anybody to travel. Right. And so then you, it's not vacation, it's business. And you have to decide why you're going to go anywhere anyway. So I, I think secession planning has come to the forefront, but it's bigger and broader than filling a job. Uh, a key role. It really now in my mind is making sure that you have a bench of talent, uh, not only the key roles, but in the jobs that are just the normal cogs of any operation. I mean, we have an unemployment rate of 5.3% right now in this country. And, you know, entry-level jobs are for the begging, right? If they're jobs where the entry level, the, the way to, the level to play is pretty easy, you bring me in in a week's time, you can train me. Everyone, every place you go, restaurants, right, um, drugstores, any place, um, every place you go, there's a once a help wanted sign. And when I talk, I'm always when I talk to people, I'm always saying, "How's it going?" If I go to a cashier, I'll say, "How's it going? How's your day?" Oh, it's crazy. I said, "I know." I'm looking in the store, and you know, I only see three or four people. I went to a dinner the other night, and we were waiting to be seated. And there was a party behind us. And the woman said, this is ridiculous. She says, we're, we, our reservation is, is at 645. And, you know, we've sat, we're standing here for 10 minutes. And I turned to the woman and I said, count the number of wait staff. And they'll tell you why we're waiting. She said, we have all these empty tables. I said, the tables are empty, but there are not enough waitresses and, and wait staff to cover. And so I think a lot of companies are reassessing, you know, do we have all the right people, not just in the key roles, just just talent, just talent. So secession is important, but it's bigger than that now. It's now we're, we're going down a level. We're going down to the basics. Do we just have the bot butts and chairs to get the work done? When you think about that transition and, and how 
leadership development and executive coaching have been on the rise, more accepted. You know, it's always been interesting to me. I, I coach with the Olympic Committee, and, and it doesn't surprise any Olympian that she needs three coaches to be able to go for gold, uh, especially if she's going a second time. Right. And that's been a relatively longer process to be embraced. And, and now I think I find that there's many more people who are senior executives and at every level of the organization starting to take on this idea that, you know, I'm, we're better together and I'm better with input and, and, and you do coaching in addition to the many other things that you do. Could you talk about coaching culture and companies that are embracing executive coaching? You have to be willing to put your badge on the table every day. You know, there may come a day when, you know, here's what we're going to do. Well, one, I would say in HR, I always feel like irrespective of what your job is in HR, you always find yourself coaching other employees in the organization because the belief is that you know more than them. I don't care what it is. Um, what I find that we're coaching on has nothing to do with being in a company. It has everything to do with your approach to business and how you lead and how you operate as a leader. Um, and interestingly enough, I was, I think I'm only one of two CHROs that we have in our firm. Um, and, and I don't, we're not assigned by functional expertise or, uh, industry experience. Although sometimes that does come into play. We literally are matched based on the experience the person is encountering and whether or not you've had that experience. Right. Um, and so what happens is once they make the match, they do a very involved interview with the individual and they do a very involved interview with the person who is engaging the coach. And what I'm happy to say is, you know, when coaching first started, it was always done as a last resort, right? Yes. Um, and people knew when you said you want to get a coach, oh, that's not good. It's not good. And I think since we now have a different idea about coaching, when you look at athletes, to your point around the Olympians that you've been involved in, it really is about taking people's performance to the next level, helping them understand how to leverage their strengths, helping them understand what their gaps are. And while we get at the personal aspects of an individual, we start with what is this organization asking you to deliver? And then we start there. And then we say, okay, so what's preventing you from having the greatest impact in delivering against what they've expected you to do? So we start from a business perspective, but naturally it backs you into, are they self-aware? Are they an authentic leader? I mean, what I'm finding is there's more discussion now than ever before around are people empathetic? And, you know, empathy is when someone tells you their experience, accepting their experience as they've described it, not trying to explain it to them in a way that makes you feel comfortable with the uncomfortable, right? Um, and are they, are people willing to be vulnerable and to say what they don't know? And during the pandemic, I think it's been interesting to see how some companies have said, we're going back to work in a month. And you were wondering, how do they know that? We've never gone through this, right? But you still see it now. You see companies that are saying, we're going to go back and we're going to go back after Labor Day. And then the variant pops up. And then they say, okay, we're going to go back October 1st. And I think employees would be so much more appreciative if you said, based on what we know today, we're making the decision. The plan is to go back Labor Day after Labor Day holiday. However, we will keep you apprised as we hear new stuff. We may have to change our opinion. Because once you put a definitive time in place, you have a significant number of your employees that begin to completely freak out. Oh my God, I mean, this thing is going up. I mean, why do they expect, 
right? And meanwhile, while you put a date out there behind the scene, the leadership team is working to try to figure out, is this date possible? Can we do it? And the employees actually, in my mind, would be okay with understanding that there's a level of ambiguity. And if we're all adults, we need, we need to educate people. There is no automatic in a lot of things that we're dealing with right now. The, you, the, your description of empathy and setting expectations, that's part of the empathy process, which Absolutely. leads to a, a transformation or a change in the way we communicate, which I think you brilliantly described. And when, when you come across now a number of many different companies and industries as, as chairman of SHRM, when you were in that role, and today as you continue to be a leader, and that's the largest organization of, of people in HR, how do you feel they are embracing this idea of being able to see the talent, build the bench, and use executive coaching, these one-on-one -on -one engagements to help people win the next goal? Well, I think SHRM, like every professional organization, is really challenged with constantly reminding their, their members that things are in flux and things are changing. Uh, in the, you know, I was I joined Sherm as an undergrad many many years ago, and I've been involved my entire career in some way or fashion. And I've seen the profession evolve quite a bit. But in my role as an executive coach, I also see that there's still challenges in the HR space. You know, often when I'm working with a client and we're talking about something, I'll say, well, you know, based on what we talked about, you may want to reach out to your HR professional because they can assist you with this. And I'm disappointed by the number of times I hear, well, why would I talk to my HR person? And I'm like, well, you're bringing a new person in or you're new, you're new to the organization and you might want to have an assimilation session with your team. Oh, well, what would they do with that, right? And so I realized that, you know, we have, we still have people who are operating in an administrative capacity and it's aligned with whether or not the leadership of the company has had an, an opportunity to experience and benefit from strategic HR, right? And one thing that is happening, I think, is because almost everything that happened this past year in some way was directly tied to the human capital of an organization, uh, there were a lot of discussions around, okay, HR, we need you to help us. And then all of a sudden wondering, well, wonder if they can help us, right? Which is unfortunate. Because I always say you can have the best product. Two companies can have the exact same product. They can deliver the same level of service. But at the end of the day, it's going to be the people that they have that's going to make a difference as to the level of success they will have. They may not, they both may be successful. I'm not saying they won't be, but clearly having an organization that really understands what it is to hire the right people, motivate and engage people. And, and, and again, part of that process is being honest and telling each person in your workforce that they have the opportunity to succeed and fail. As an organization changes, some people don't change with the organization. And the organizations that are respectful and honest and transparent about that are clear about where they're wanting to go. And it, it supports managers who have to have those difficult conversations. So I would say SHRM is trying to make sure that the profession, there's, I, I think last count, there are 350,000 members of SHRM globally. Uh, and I think what they're trying to do is to help people understand that the world of work has changed dramatically. If nothing has changed the most, and a lot of things have changed, the way people view work, 
Uh, work is still important to people. It defines who we are, whether we like it or not. Uh, but I think now what's happened, sitting at home for a year, practically, people who've never had the opportunity to work remote, people having to be self-motivating, you don't have a manager walking past your desk. Uh, and I would also say people working a year where in many cases they got very little feedback, right? You know, they got very little real-time feedback because a lot of feedback is kind of walking past your desk and going, Mark, you're doing a great job or Mark. Help me, help me understand what happened there. A lot of that didn't happen because so many other things were happening. And I think what they are trying to do as, a, as an organization is to remind people that the profession continues to evolve. I would say um, kind of like the medical profession. I have to believe with what the um, nurses and doctors and all the supporting staff is experiencing, having friends who are, who are physicians, they are all going through that you know, moment of reflection. Is this what I want to do? Am I doing it uh, and making a difference the way I want to make it? I think the same thing is true for people who also have the job of stewarding and helping organizations with their people. They're asking, is this what I want to do? Uh, is this organization allowing me to do it in a way that speaks to me? Um, and am I enjoying uh, this experience? You can be in a crisis. And, and if you're in a crisis with the people that are like-minded, I'm going to say you enjoy it, but it's not as bad as it could be, right? Yes, who am I in the rowboat with going down exactly. the rapid? Exactly. A huge difference. And as you said, if you can't feel them or their presence, it's hard to really even interpret all of these signals, right. whether I'm, I'm up or down today. And am I really partnering and collaborating with you? Did I come across as too abrupt or was I empathetic or, oh, you seem down. And so it's difficult enough in real time and in person to do that. And in this, in this environment, it seems almost as if, you know, I have, I just counted uh, 77 engagements that I've done with boards and chief wow. executives. And, and I realize now yet for all of us who've been doing this for decades, it's a complete game changer to yes. have an ex have this kind of existential crisis. I've been looking in the mirror way too long without enough feedback to be as objective as I could be about how we're doing. And, and, and after a couple of decades of being a, in a C-suite role, and being a chief executive a couple of times, I realized that sense of agency that people have to be able to connect with each other has, has really shifted in fundamental ways. And, and, you, and, now very, you're, and, so, and, you know, the thing that's also happened is, you know, people have worked in organizations, worked with people for years, and they've had to have some very crucial conversations. And they thought they were like-minded. They thought they were on the same page. And, you know, one, I think we have lost the art of agreeing to disagree. But mm. I also think that there are some things that are, we, we feel so fundamentally different about those things. In addition to agreeing to disagree, I think we have to learn how to respect the fact that we have a different point of view and then decide based on that. So then how do we engage? And some people have said, you know, we, we are so different on how we feel about this. I choose not to engage. And I think that's an accepted option as well, because there is so much going on. And I do think that as bad as the pandemic was, uh, I think that there have been silver linings that I hope people don't lose. I think we realize a lot of things that we had come to do. Someone said to me, I'm, I'm loving the fact that I would have this calendar with all of these events that I had to go to. And now as things, and now as things open up, I'm quite comfortable saying I can't make it. 
right? And they said, that's translation for, I don't wanna make it, right? And that nobody questions when you say you can't make it. Um, you know, you've learned, I know I've learned that there were friends who had uh, underlying health conditions and I've known them for years and they never had a need to disclose it. And they, and you found out because you'd say, hey, meet me, we can sit on the patio at Starbucks and have an iced tea. And they were like, no, I'm not leaving my house. You know, I'm not leaving. And you're like, oh, I got my mask and, and, I'm, and I have the vaccine. They're like, no, no, I'm not leaving. And then, you know, then you begin to realize in some cases, this fear is real. It's grounded in the fact that I have an autoimmune deficiency, right? It's grounded in the fact I'm just uncomfortable or I've experienced a lot more loss. Uh, and so because of that, I'm really rattled. And, and so I think the good thing has come, it's helped us um, reflect on what our experiences are, what we value, who we value. But you know, the thing that's most disappointing, I think, is while you're going through the self-reflection, you hope others are going through it and in some way would be more sympathetic and empathetic with others. And that's the challenge that we're having right now. It certainly is. I mean, at one level, I felt at least at the beginning that I could beam into more people's lives with a sense of intimacy of hanging out in your den, or is is that the soccer trophy that your daughter just got? And uh, yes, no, it's okay. Let let the puppy jump on your lap. Yeah. And and I I work with David Chang at Momofuku, and he's this great chef, and he realizes that you know I've now had a chance to cook more meals for my newborn. Exactly. Than I ever would have. And I could connect with the family. You know, what a blessing it is for us to actually be together, uh, even though the world's a battle in a sense. Um, right. So it really is an interesting shift of priority. Yeah. And, and work, and, you know, work has always been a major part of who people, you know, who we are. And the fact that that has changed so dramatically, you know, where you work has changed, what you work on has changed, you know, for many, you know, um, what you worked on, where you worked, who you worked with, how you worked, when you worked. I mean, for some people, if they had to deliver projects and they didn't, they didn't have a need to have constantly meet, meet constantly, they could work at three o'clock in the morning, you know, send it in and maybe later that afternoon check in. Uh, and so, you know, I think this idea that, you know, someone was saying to me, they saw a matrix and it said that the matrix was uh, time and place. And it used to be that we worked nine to five in an office. And then we went to um, in an office, but it wasn't quite nine to five. We let people flex. And then we moved to anytime, any place, right? And then we went to kind of a version where it has to be in a place, but it has, it can be anytime. And so that's one quadrant, time and place. But the other one is what are you asking people to do, right? And then the next one is, and what is their personal situation? And I think that's what companies are struggling with. You and I can be project managers and we can be responsible for doing the Gantt charts and keeping everybody on track. And so a lot of that could be done remote, but you may be in a household with four roommates. And so as soon as they open the doors, you wanna come in, it's social for you. And oh, by the way, you can't work at home. And I may have a situation where actually I have a two hour commute. And so I can actually give the company more by working at home and coming in once a week, twice a week. So we have the same exact job, right? We have the flexibility, but now our personal situation would suggest more or less flexibility and our personal desires need to be a consideration. And so what's happening in that situation, if you say, we want you both to work remote, 
Well, you don't want to. I do. If you say we want, we want you both to come in, you want to come in. I don't want to come in every day. And I think what's happening is in some cases, people are coming in, um, but they are beginning to look at companies that are saying, you don't have to come in. Or you can come in. I mean, I think the majority of workers are going to end up in a hybrid workplace, right? They're going to have some flexibility to work remote because I think work is real. I think work is social. And most people, when I talk to them and most of the surveys that when I talk to CHROs and they tell me about the results of their surveys, most people want to have the flexibility to work maybe two days out of the office, right? Uh, they don't want to be gone all the time, but there are some that don't want to come in at all. So that's, you know, work has changed a lot. And it's, you know, I don't envy the people who are having to make these decisions day to day and having to bring managers along uh, with the most diverse workforce that you have in the most challenging time uh, with all the social issues and upheaval that are going on, trying to blend all that together. Um, that's not an easy job. All that complexity that you're describing means a lot coming from you because you've seen it and you've been around and you've you've seen this evolution in the profession and in all companies and now in the role that you have on boards and as a coach. If I were to time shift you back then to imagine what it was like as Karitha was entering the workforce and we looked at a, a woman who might be just two decades <laughs> on this planet, what kind of advice would you give her as she steps into this new world. It wouldn't have been the same to be advising her back when you were taking that, that job. Well, you know, in a, in a weird way, as, as crazy as it is, what I would tell you is if I were talking to my you know 20 year old self right out of grad school, I would probably say uh, one, run your own race. Uh, you know, I started my career working at IBM and I was in a formal rotation program. So you, and as soon as you felt like you had a job down, you'd look up and somebody tapping you on the shoulder and go, next job, let's go. Um, and now what I would say is that happens, but it happens in a pretty happenstance way where I feel like you go into an organization and you're operating almost like a consultant. Once they know that you have a certain expertise, you're doing a job and someone may tap you on the shoulder and go, hey, we got a project over here. We need you to work on that project. And usually by the time they, when they're tapping you on the shoulder, it's just when you're on a roll where you are, you know what you're doing and you're like, okay, this is going to be so great because I'll get to cruise a bit because I know exactly what I'm doing. And that's typically the time when someone taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, we got something new over here. And so my advice would be that, you know, you run your own race in terms of, you know, what is it that you enjoy doing? What is your superpower? And let that lead you more than when you're young, there's a tendency to look at other people and see what's happening in their career and, and say, oh, wow, you know, they moved that person. I should have moved. I'm really upset about that and blah, blah, blah. In the end, you realize that stuff really doesn't matter. Uh, and it really is about every opportunity that comes along isn't the right one for you, right? But when you're young, it's hard to understand what the right one is for you because you don't even know. Uh, and so just getting clear, I remember someone said to me, when you first started working, did you know you wanted to be a, um, a chief people officer? And did you know you wanted to be in HR for 30 years? Uh, and then how did you make the decision? And I said to the person, my list was very small. I started out saying, I want to do a job that I liked. I want to work with people that I liked. I always wanted to work in a global company. 
And I wanted to do things that made me happy. Those are the things. And I actually think throughout the course of my career, I went back to this basic list and it kind of worked for me, right? Um, if I was, if, I can't say I always worked with people that made, that I wanted to work for or with, but when I was working with someone and I just felt like we were different kinds of people, I kind of tried to figure out, well, why am I here and what am I supposed to learn? Right. And I always say to people, my grandmother had this great saying that she said, in order to clap, you have to have two hands. So if you're making noise, you got to have two hands. And so if the person is disagreeable, as long as you're not, you're going to have very little disagreement. Right. As long as you're willing to say how you feel. Uh, and what I say to people, and I use it in coaching all the time, you know, and I guess now we say it's about being vulnerable and being more authentic back then. And even now I kind of had this mantra that I can tell you how I feel and you can, you will try, but you can't argue with me when I tell you how I feel. So if I were in a meeting and I felt like someone cut me off or a person did something that was very hurtful, I would, I would meet with them after the meeting. And I would say, Mark, do you have a few minutes? And you say, oh yeah, absolutely. And I'd say, you know, when we were in the meeting, you said such and such. And I just need to let you know that that really hurt my feelings when you did that. And often what I would find is I would get the, I, I don't think I said that. I, I don't think I said that. And I'd say, no, you did because that's why we're having this discussion, right? And I know that's what I heard. And then they would say, well, well, here's what I meant. I didn't mean to do that, blah, 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 blah. And this was going on and that was going on. And I would listen. And then I would say, you know, I, Mark, I, I don't know what was in your heart. I don't know what was in your head. I thought it was important for you to know just how I felt. And, and I said to someone, when I did it, um, the more I did it, the easier it was to do. And when I did it, it was very freeing because what I found is if someone was just rude and you would have clients sometimes that were just incredibly rude, if you said how you felt and you were in a situation and they did it again, and I have to tell you 98% of the time, if I had the discussion, it didn't happen again. I mean, honestly, it didn't happen again because it's so unusual for somebody to tell somebody how they feel in the workplace. But when I, when it did happen, it had no effect on me the next time. Because one, I didn't have a high expectation that you wouldn't do it again, right? It's, the, it's, it's riding the wave of Mark's a great guy, Mark's an idiot, Mark's a great guy, Mark's rude. If I just decide I'm going to stay here, I'm going to be respectful of you, I'm going to work with you, but I'm not going to go up and down. The day that you're nice to me, you're extra nice, I'm staying here because tomorrow you might be down here. I just found it had it lost its power once I put it in the universe. And often what I find when we're doing coaching with people, the biggest challenge for many executives that we coach is they struggle with how to have the crucial conversations, particularly those that are really important to them. And they turn into these emotional things where they're holding it all in, right? And as a result, it makes them think crazy. It makes them say crazy stuff, not the stuff they should be saying. Um, it makes them socialize things that they shouldn't socialize because they need to get it out, right? Um, so it's, I think there've been some learnings in this pandemic. Um, I mean, I'm ready for us to stop learning, by the way. Uh, I'm, I'm ready to stop trying to find what the good is and the bad, but I think there have been some, some learnings that we can take forward. Well, I have to say that I've, I've learned more in the time you've been so generously giving us in this conversation about how to think about our own transformation, our, 
our growth, how to build the bench, how to understand how the diverse choir voices really do seed the capacity to change and then the get help. You know, I'm Mark Thompson and I know that I need help. And so I am delighted to know that we can count on you to help boards and help executive teams and that um, this whole coaching culture, I think, is transformational for the work that we do with people. So thank you for your generosity today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Chief Executive Podcast. I'm Mark Thompson. And please don't forget to like and subscribe for more episodes every week.